How would you like to feel the presence of God? Oh, are you talking to me? Yeah. Well, of course I would like to. I, I mean, it seems like the presence of God would not just feel awesome, but could be this real remedy for our wounds and answer to the deep questions that we have. Great. Okay. All you've got to do is write the word on your heart. Hmm. Yeah. I was meaning to ask you about that. I mean, first of all, the heart is a pretty significant part of me. So if I'm going to write something on it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it had better be a really good thing. Right. Uh, the essence of the question then becomes... What is the word? Are we talking about the Bible? Yes. Okay. Well then. Well, wait, wait, wait. That's actually not all that we're talking about. You mean there's more to the word? What we're really talking about is the full arc of revelation itself, the constant effort of the divine to reach us, whether that's any of the sequence of sacred texts that the human race has been given, or even something as fundamental as nature itself. Wow. And you're saying that the key to feeling and receiving this presence of God is in that revelation? And by implication that tonight we're going to delve into a technique that gives us easy steps toward unlocking and beginning that practice? Exactly! I'm actually surprised you could pull that out of my previous statement. Tonight we're going to go step by step into how to connect the human to the divine. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg and Life. Today we're going to be looking at how to write the word on your heart and what that means and why it's worth doing. My name is Curtis Childs and I'll be your host and with me is Dr. Jonathan Rose, Swedenborg scholar. Thanks so much for hanging out. Hey Curtis, good fun. And today we're going to be looking at connecting to the divine through revelation. Oh, through like through the written word, that kind of thing? Well, and anything else that fits in that category. Yeah, interesting. There was this tradition... Uh, long ago in Christianity called Lectio Divina that's still practiced today by Protestants and Catholics where you read scripture and then you uh, you meditate on it, okay. then you pray and then you contemplate it and so on. And uh, But I, there's a friend of mine in Australia I met a few years ago who has developed kind of a Swedenborg version of this, you might say. Oh, cool. Well, we like Swedenborg versions of anything especially things that are going to get us to be able to dig deeper and deeper into the text. So your friend sounds like he's doing something we like, seems like a cool guy. Yeah, I think yeah. let's, uh, let's let him introduce himself. Yeah, my name's David Miller, and I'm a minister with the uh, New Church in Australia, and also principal of the uh, Australian New Church College. And as I understand it, his program is called Logopraxis. Logopraxis? Yeah, it's actually named for the Greek logos, which is about the word, and then praxis, which is practicing things. Mm -hmm. So it's like how you practice, how you live by what's in the word. But maybe he should tell us about it himself. We have this program called Logopraxis. Um, and Logopraxis really is a, an intentional spiritual practice which is focused on using the uh, texts of um, divine revelation as a basis for uh, spiritual growth and development. So it's cool that David Miller is using this on Swedenborg's texts. As the Lectio reads. Divina yeah. was uh, based on the Bible, you know, and lots of those kind of things are, are based on the Bible. But he's actually reading Swedenborg's texts in this way yeah. and mining this this kind of information out of them. But I don't think it would be 
unique to Swedenborg's text, I imagine you could use sacred texts of any different kind for a practice like this. Well, it seems like people all over the place are trying to figure out how do you engage with sacred text and, and how do you develop processes and methods to do that. We came across a, a meditation website where they're actually handing people a bunch of passages from a bunch of different traditions and saying, uh-huh. meditate on these. I know there's a couple hmm. of students at Harvard that are leading a reading group of Harry Potter as a sacred text. So wow. people are definitely looking to how do we get text and how do we engage with it? Yeah, that's right. And I remember that Swedenborg makes some statement at some point in his spiritual experiences, I think it is, that that there are actually two foundations of truth. Yeah. You know, one is nature and the other is written revelation. Can you even do this with nature? Yeah, I mean, like you just said, they're the same thing. The, the, the original revelation was nature, the way that it works. Mm. It's all correspondence that could teach us. So the ancient people, yeah, that was their, their revelation. That's, that's true. how they read it. That's true. They would read nature, wouldn't they? That's right. That's what get messages from it and so on. That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So you've got all this world to choose from, and you don't know, like all these different groups we're talking about, who knows exactly what they're looking yeah. for in there. So I feel like it's important for us to nail down, why are we going at the Swedenborg text yeah. in this way? What are we trying to get out of it? So, so what's the, the purpose behind Logopraxis? Yeah, probably best to let David Miller tell us. If we have a... Uh, I suppose a, a branding statement. It's about making the Lord visible in our midst. That this is it's this idea, and, and the question is, well, how do you how do you do that? That's not too bad, visible Lord in the midst. Mm. But I agree with David. How do you do that? It's amb- it's ambitious, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's a it's a pretty extreme goal. Luckily for all of you, we're going to look into just how to do it in part one. So we're going to spend this show taking a look at Revelation and our relationship to it. It's worth asking the question, why is Revelation so important in the first place? Why are we going to devote a block of perfectly good time to the way that we interface with Revelation? Well, according to Swedenborg, the mechanics of the way the thing works, you've got to have an external source of wisdom. We can't get out of the maze that we're in without something else that's above it that can see the path that leads us out of the labyrinth of our own mind or or spiritual condition. It's just the way that it works. He talks about it in New Jerusalem 249. Without revelation from the divine, we cannot know anything about eternal life or even about God, and even less about love for God and faith in God, so there must of necessity be some revelation that makes it possible for us to know. So it's not that revelation has got to teach you how to tie your shoes, but there are key concepts that you could never just intuit from looking at the way the world around us, the visible sensory world, is structured. Revelation plays this key piece. It's an essential nutrient that the body can't manufacture. So it's important, but it's not just like, oh, we have a party, we have to bring revelation along because my mom says we have to. Revelation is cool. Like We're glad to have Revelation along. According to Swedenborg, actually, in True Christianity 6, he says that Revelation is, is the Lord with us. He says, Scripture was dictated by God, and nothing else can come from God except what is God and is called divine. This is what lies at the heart of Scripture. We're starting to get a little bit mystical here because we're saying you've got text that somehow has a heart, and that heart is not just any heart, but it's God. It's the divine itself. And to further throw us out into outer space, Swedenborg says actually that the Lord is the Word. 
This is True Christianity 6 again. In the de- derivative layers of Scripture that come from that heart and lie below it, however, sacred Scripture has been adapted to the comprehension of both angels and people in the world. In these layers, too, there is divineness, but in different forms that are called heavenly, spiritual, and earthly divine qualities. They are, in fact, the layered clothes of God. So everything about the text is is the heart of God, is the covering of God. This is, we're interacting with the divine. And this might seem like, how do you connect A to B there? So let's look at how do we experience the Lord in the Word? And I'm going to turn it back to David Miller for a little of his insight on this. The texts of divine revelation are the Lord's provision for us to have something that can be taken into our minds by which the Lord who's flowing into all of our souls can be recognized and we so that we can have a conscious awareness of his presence in our life. So we need to have these ideas integrated into firstly into our mind and then into our life in order for us to really begin to see the Lord and to have a much more direct experience of his presence. So it's almost like one of those little antennas that they used to have on radios that you'd flick up and pull up, that the Lord is there and he's broadcasting. But as we get these ideas from the the literal sense of the text and, and the meaning in it, that suddenly we have a receiver that we can begin to bring God into us and interface with the divine and what God is trying to reach us with. So there's these two general places you can find the Lord in the external, the literal text of the world, but there's also this side of God as the the Word, this, this more expansive divine concept that, that is somehow analogous to divine truth itself. And we really got to do some definition of terms here and take a look at what is the Word of Swedenborg is saying the Word. He defines it here in Divine Providence 172. He says, the Word means what is divine truth coming from divine goodness, or in other words, divine wisdom from divine love. And if you know your Swedenborg, you know that that truth or wisdom is actually just the visible, visible, tangible manifestation of the underlying reality, which is love. So in a certain way, divine truth or the word is the part of God we can interact with and see. So, but Swedenborg usually will conflate the two. So he says the word, the text, and the Lord as the word interface there, or they intersect there. So somehow you can encounter this divine, this great divine truth, which we'd call the word, in the word, which is sacred scripture. Makes sense, right? Another way to think about it is in terms of an internal reception of God and an external reception, or a flow, an internal flow and an external flow, and that these two ways that God is coming at us can meet in the middle, you know, in in our hearts and in our minds. And um, so the Lord flows into us, um, and that's into the deepest part of our being. And so when that inflowing life meets a concept that uh, it can be wedded to then uh, something happens, something remarkable happens, whereby we are able to be brought into, uh, well, I suppose it's called enlightenment, you know, like you have an insight into, yeah, you know, this is is the Lord present with me. So we have this budding romance between us and the divine, and we're finally getting to the chapter in the book where we meet for the first time. And doing that, that initial contact where we've built up enough of a store of concepts from these, the uh, revelation that we can actually hear what the Lord's been saying this whole time, this can actually nucleate the Lord's presence in us or set up this rapid uh, acceptance of, of what was there all along. 
So it's not enough just to read and get knowledge about the Lord. We have to actually work with the material so that the Lord can be present to us. Because the Lord is always fully present. He's omnipresent. But in order for us to be aware of that, we require something to which that influx can be grounded. And so it's like we take the Lord in as we engage with the word through our senses. And that meets the Lord as he is coming in through our soul. And those two things, when they connect, connect. it's like the Lord's spirit is given a body by which then we have um, a way of uh, being in contact with him. He's made visible, literally visible in that sense. So he talks about this new state of life and mind in us giving the Lord a body or form. He talks about it as being grounded. And you may have noticed in my last little segment that I did, you thought, hey, Curtis went out and bought himself a thesaurus because he said the word nucleate. But I'm not just throwing that word around. That's actually a perfect description of this process. It's where there's all this potential energy ready to go, but you need one particular catalyst to throw the whole thing into motion. We'll show you exactly what it means here. When water boils, bubbles of water vapor form on microscopic pockets of air trapped in particles or in scratches on the surface of the container. These are called nucleation sites. If you heat distilled water in a smooth and clean glass container, there's nowhere for the water vapor to escape, so the water becomes superheated. It surpasses the boiling point without boiling. As soon as you put something into superheated water, it suddenly gives the water vapor nucleation sites, causing the water to explode with bubbles. So think of it this way. The superheated water is the Lord's omnipresence. The Lord is love and wisdom itself and is omnipresent in our life and in our minds. But for us to experience that presence, we need concepts to serve as nucleation sites. The concepts we put into our minds from Revelation are the nucleation sites that allow the omnipresence of the Lord to take form. The potential is there, it just needs grounding. So that process may not have been as well understood in Swedenborg's time, otherwise he might have listed it as a correspondence. Is this example of the physical world showing us the way the spiritual world behaves? In this case, you know, not just letting the energy out of water, but letting the divine and the human come into connection. That's awesome to think about, that we're all sort of bathed in that divine omnipresence all the time, Yeah. but you need something to sort of pull that into reality or to catalyze it and everything. That's cool. And uh, so all you need, really, is just to be able to be aware of two levels at play at once, right? Yeah, no biggie, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, I get the idea of levels, uh, I think, but how would you even start to look for those? Well, it's interesting. Uh, with reading in general, I know that there's sort of a, a, an approach to deep reading where you're not only like picking up the words and what they're saying, but also looking at your own reactions. You know, we all have mel- multi-leveled minds. Yeah. And so able to sort of notice, wow, this passage is frustrating me or this passage is exciting me or something yeah. like that, you know. Yeah, and, and David Miller says that it's it's that sort of self-reflection is key to approaching the text in a devotional way. In a devotional way. Okay, so you enter, you, you approach it in a sacred kind of way. Well, he, and he explains it a little further here. The actual act of reading is a devotional act. And, um, you know... The way we're trained to read is just to extract information, and even more so nowadays, you know, like, because there's so much information, we're just, um, 
we need uh, cognitive tools by which we can just filter things very quickly, but um, that's not always the best way of, of garner, garnering what we need. Um, so with the text, this is uh, really a, a case of uh, stepping back, uh, reminding oneself that this is a, you know, this is a sacred enterprise. It's a holy thing to be engaging with the text, um, and then being in the text and dividing your attention so that you can be aware of what's arising within you when you are engaging with, with the text as such. So, and there, there, there are many states that begin to manifest if we give attention to that. And some of them are resistant to what we're actually reading. And um, uh, so the principle in Logopraxis is, is that uh, regardless of how we are responding or how our natural mind is responding to what it's reading, um, the text is true. How it is true can only be discovered if we're willing to practice it. So if we come up against something that doesn't quite fit with how we see things, um, there can be an inclination just to dismiss it and move on. But in logo praxis, what we are hoping to do is create in people a sensitivity to that very conflict or tension, so that becomes a point of engagement rather than so rather than just skipping over something. Um, it's about you know what is the Lord actually pointing out here with regard to my state. So it's fascinating the idea that you're not just reading like you usually do, where oh this part mm -hmm. is boring, I'll skip this, I don't know, but you're actually watching yourself read. You're watching that your own reactions are part of the puzzle and that, oh, this, the fact that this portion mm. I think is worth skipping may be an indicator of my own state. And so we're going to look at it through there. It's just a cool way to, to sort of observe the observer. This is really where, to my mind, the Swedenborg part kicks in or something mm. because Swedenborg is so much about that interiority and looking, you know, self-examination, observation yeah. and, and where the thoughts and feelings come from and all that. So Right. And with like reading and reaction and inner and outer self and logo and practice, we're starting to get a lot of moving parts. So I think we should break it down okay. into if you want to do this at home, we're going to give you some simple steps that lead you through the whole thing. The first one is you got to pick a source, pick your sacred text, you know, the one that's going to work for you, or the example we're giving here is Swedenborg, that may or may not float your boat. Secondly, when you read, make it devotional, and we just talked about what that means, and be aware of your state. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and make it devotional. Isn't it? it's, it's just an attitude of heart in a way, isn't it? Right? Like you're just, you know, it's not like just sort of reading the newspaper, you're you're really approaching it in a certain kind of sacred state. So um, now we got our first two steps. I'm eager to, to get to the next couple. Uh, you know, we, we become aware of our state when we're reading Revelation. That's, what, that's the premise so far, is when we're reading it, we can actually watch ourselves and learn about ourselves. Mm. As we begin to do that, it's going to take us through a process, right? Because then God is able to start kicking in and moving us. So I want to know, what's that process like? That's exactly what we're going to look at in part two. So an astonishing thing about this is that every single person, in a way, has a different scripture, meaning the scripture is different for each one of us. It speaks to our states in an individualized kind of way, which is sort of astonishing, but this is something that Swedenborg repeats a number of times. The sacred scripture is actually like a mirror in which we see God, and each of us sees God in our own way. We all have our own 
take on that. It's an interaction between that sacredness in the text and our own individual heart and mind. And this is particularly true uh, to an astonishing degree of angels. Swedenborg says that when we're reading Scripture, angels get an individualized, beautiful—it almost sounds like a little movie that they get— that's specifically about things that they need to know where they are in their lives, what the next step is, and so on. But don't take my word for it. Listen to this from Secrets of Heaven 1767. Some people love the Lord's word and live a kind and charitable life. Others believe what it says in a simple-hearted way without making assumptions that undermine the religious truth of its inner meaning. So we're talking about two different kinds of people, and when these kind of people read Scripture, this magic trick works. And those are people who just love the Word and live a kind and charitable life, and others just don't have baggage that's in the way of it. When the Word is read by either kind of person, it is displayed by the Lord before angels' eyes with tremendous beauty and charm, accompanied by visual representations and adapted with inexpressible variety to every phase they are then passing through. It's an individualized, personalized, almost sounds like a movie about their lives that arises when we're when people like this are reading the Word. The beauty and charm are so great that every single facet is perceived as alive. This vital energy is the life that lies within the Word and that gave birth to the Word when it was sent down from heaven. For this reason, the Lord's Word, by its very nature, conceals spiritual and heavenly messages within, no matter how unpolished it seems in the letter. These inner messages lie open to the view of good spirits and of angels when people on earth read the Word." So what Swedenborg is saying here is he's showing us the other side of this connection that's forged when we're sitting down with Scripture. We, you know, most of us are not in the least aware that anything like this is happening. But when we crack open the book, there's actually a connection being made, and angels are getting something very special out of it. And they're not only getting an individualized message, but they're helping us, and it's calling out things within us and uh, lifting things out of our hearts and minds, maybe positive or negative, that are brought to our view. Here's how David Miller puts it. So, you know, these shifts and changes that are going on in terms of our state um, as we read our resistances, our delights, all, all of all of the things that we can feel as as we engage with the text. You know, it's not uh, out of the question that these are bringing us into contact with certain spiritual societies that are, are manifesting in us as particular viewpoints or particular patterns of feeling or affection that really need opening up for us. So this is what the text is for, and this is what spiritual growth is about. So we have an idea of what we're doing. We're reading the text. Now we've got a glimpse of what the angels are doing. What is the Lord doing behind this all? Well, his intent is our spiritual welfare, moving us forward on our spiritual journey. And so the more aware we are of our own state while we're reading it, the better this is as a tool to help us move forward. Uh, as I mentioned before, like the Lord is omnipresent. Uh, so, and often we can feel distant 
because just because you know we're in a space where the Lord doesn't feel close to us but what the text is seeking to do as the Lord is really try to straighten out our thinking and our feeling state so that um, they can be vessels for which he can be more more fully present yeah so the text is a remarkable a remarkable thing once we begin to um, approach it um, in a way in which we are looking for it to reveal things about ourselves. This is reminiscent of what we read in Hebrews 4, verse 12, that epistle in the New Testament, which talks about the Word as being sharper than any two-edged sword, that it can tell us the difference between our soul and our spirit, and it can reveal to us the thoughts and intents of our heart. This is what Scripture says the function of the Word is. And so it is about this internal search into ourselves and seeing what's going on within us. And really, ultimately, it's only the Lord can do this revealing. He has this power. Look at what we read in Divine Providence 172. Since the Word comes from the Lord alone and is about the Lord alone, it follows that when we're being taught from the Word, we are being taught from the Lord. The Word is actually divine. Who is able to communicate something divine and instill it into our hearts except divinity itself, the source and the subject? That's so great. It's not only the source of it, it's also the topic. There are things about the Lord that are being revealed to us and things about ourself, what stands in the way between us and how we can move forward to establish that connection more strongly. So that's a very magnetic pull to us to move forward. But uh, it can be a kind of a bumpy road. It's not like, oh, wow, I saw something really beautiful. It's all rainbows and butterflies. You know, we may see difficult things that come up in us we have strong attachments to things that actually don't serve us that well, and the this process can really reveal those to us. The truth in there can help us to see that. Of course, to straighten things out doesn't necessarily feel like a great process, right? So, so um, because there are many things we're attached to, uh, find our security in, which aren't actually good for us from a spiritual perspective. And what truths do is they bring a light. So truths from the text bring a light, shine a light onto those things that we may be uh, very tightly attached to, um, but, uh, but can no longer serve us in terms of bringing us to where we need to be uh, to be able to receive the Lord's love in a fuller kind of way. So we may not love everything that we're seeing, but it is something that we need to see. It's something for us individually. And so it's important to go through that process. And in a way, Secrets of Heaven 2311 sums up this whole thing in this way. The Lord's life flows into the literal meaning through the inner meaning in keeping with the feelings of the person who is reading it. So that flow is personalized to us and has lessons for us. So it's fascinating that this process is sort of illuminating this web of spiritual connection, mm. that we get aware of not just what we're like spiritually, but how we're positioned in relation to the rest of the spiritual world and connected mm. to heaven and hell. And you could think that this would bring up some anxiety, and David says that it does, but there's actually a very interesting reason why we could feel anxiety during this process. And it's not quite what you might think. Here he describes mm. it. 
So what we would uh, term downtimes uh, involved in spiritual work are, are really just um, the means by which things are straightened out in terms, particularly in terms of our spiritual associations. Um, so often um, a state of anxiety that can come on uh, in this kind of work is really, we are feeling the anxiety of uh, spiritual associations that are being moved on and we're feeling it as if it is our own. And so, you know, we can have states of anxiety and we just got no idea why because there doesn't seem to be any problems or issues going on, yet these feelings arise. And um, so what Logopraxis does is it moves us into uh, being able to trust in a process. So that's so interesting to think about uh, when sort of random feelings come up. And uh, those kind of feelings, when they're negative, you just want to turn away from them, not experience them. Like, yeah. I don't I don't want to feel that maybe I should stop reading or maybe I should stop thinking about whatever right. I'm thinking about. Just move away from the feeling. And no matter how much I hear it, it, it takes such a long time to get used to the idea in Swedenborg's works that what I'm feeling may not be coming from me. You know what I mean? This is somebody else's reaction, actually. Yeah. Somebody else is being, you know, is feeling deprived of something they usually get. And that's why there's this anxiety. Actually, it's good news for me, you know. I think it's the, a really interesting The best concept. news in Swedenborg is that not all this baggage that we feel is ours. And that, that you can, you can, have you ever had the experience of, I feel anxious and I don't remember why. And yeah. I've got to sort of trace my thoughts back to, oh, right. that was the thing making me anxious. Right. And you could, you retain the feeling, but then you don't have the thoughts. Yeah, that's right. Because, But you can feel this anxiety and that sometimes it's not traceable back to something that really means something for you directly. It's, it's a part of a process. Because the way we process pain matters a lot if we understand the source. Like working out right. or something, you, feel, you can feel pain during it, but it, it doesn't hurt in the same way because you know this isn't damaged. So approaching these sort of anxieties in the local practice situation in the same way... It just, I feel like it changes the whole way that, that you're feeling about it. It changes the experience right. of the anxiety itself. You can even get to the point where you feel like, as with your analogy of a workout, where you feel like, oh, that's good. You know, like I can feel that lactic acid burn or something. That's right. You, you know, where that's you right. feel like, no, this is good. I had a good workout, you know, even though you feel stiff or something. And Yes. And that we're not going to have to clean up everything. You know, like the, it's all just me. And a part of it is just you're moving on. You're going through the process. Yeah. But the process is kind of complicated. Can we look at that list again, like break? down what these pieces oh, are that course. we're going through. And I think we should update it. Okay. All right. And so in addition to picking that source and reading regularly and then looking at what we read in the state we're in, then we would, what, note a point of engagement, right? Yes. Like notice that thing that, that triggers us or that we're responding in some way and also then reflect about it with respect to our life to try to see is something in that scripture actually addressing that issue for us. And... The answer should be yes. I mean, according to Swedenborg, the divine can hook it up so that revelation applies to everyone, everywhere, all the time. In all these different states. Yeah, and, and, and to your individually, life. individually, to you. Yeah, right. It's yes, amazing. your life in right. particular, that it's not just right. written for, for someone else in some other time or some other situation. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, it can be taken intensely personally. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, and that's, that's why I had so much... Uh, trouble trying to figure out your state with all my reading, you know, yeah, it's yeah. actually only uh, myself I, I can I get I am into. an enigma even unto myself. Mm, that's, that's so wise. All right, so we, we're in this process, and we're starting to change now. We're starting to, things are starting to happen, we're starting to move our spiritual associations. So what does that change look like exactly? Yeah, and well, that's exactly what we're going to find out in part three. 
we're going to be going through change. And a sequence of changes is something we like to call a process. If there's an intent and a direction to the whole thing. And we are smack dab in the middle of a process right now. And just to recap, in case we sort of lost our bearings, what we're doing is we have revelation, which is this essential external manifestation of the, the divine truth that God consists in. And we can interact with this. You know, in this case, we're looking at through reading text. We're reading this text, but we're not just reading it like you read the newspaper. We are actually watching ourselves read it, noticing how our own spirit reacts to the information that's in there. From that, from that acknowledgement, a lot, there's this divine that's always flowing into everyone all the time, and it says, oh, there's somewhere that I can land and, and sprout. So then we have this increased presence of God with us. God always brings love and light, so the light allows us to see a little bit better our spiritual state, and from that, there can be these positive changes made in our spiritual associations. So that's a lot going on, but you'll never get to this point unless you're engaged. This is not something you can do as a thought experiment or as an armchair expert to get forward in this process. We've got to take this stuff and be applying it to our own lives. We have to be not just learning principles, but living those principles, which we say all the time, but you got to hammer it home because that's the key ingredient. We don't have that. It doesn't work. Swedenborg talks about it, Spiritual Experiences 5945. He says, it should be fully understood that none of us can live a life aligned with concepts from the Word if we don't use those concepts as a basis from which to reflect on our own thoughts, intentions, and deeds. So not just reflect on somebody else's, the point of getting those concepts Look at, now I have a compass to explore my own inner world, which I find that awesome. Use them to explore ourselves and to abstain from evil behavior and do what is good, as if doing so under our own power. Otherwise, we receive no faith, and if we receive no faith, we have no partnership with the Lord, and so cannot be led by the Lord. So this, we're giving you a tool that lets you look at what's in you, and you can better pick out this I like, this is good, this is serving the greater good of humanity, this stuff not so much turning in this direction. That's the process. And it seems like I'm doing it, but this is really is God reaching right in there and doing it through us and with us. And if we were going to undergo a process as intense sounding as that, if it was something physical, like let's say that a good analog would be running a marathon, everybody knows you can't just run one, that you've got to take the time to put in the effort to get in shape it is work. And that's why if someone said, do you want to run a marathon with me in two months? You'd say, no, I don't want to do that because it's a ton of work. Spiritual things, remember, are just as real and as tangible as physical things. So it's it's a spiritual marathon. We got to put in that work. What Logopraxis does, it has minimal structure. Structure that is skeletal in the sense that it's there to support a process, and the process is the process of our regeneration or the evolution of consciousness. And um, in order for that to happen, we have to accept that it is work. And um, uh, just as we fully accept in the nat- in natural external life that uh, in order to achieve uh, what we want to achieve, we have to work to get there. Well, it's no different with spiritual life. You know, the spiritual life you don't uh, gain the that sense of the Lord's presence through osmosis, you know, it it just doesn't happen without us having to actually be engaged in the process and um, taking responsibility for the states and of our thoughts and affections and really starting to examine the quality of them, you know, is this pattern of thinking or feeling really in line with what I understand um, heavenly life to be?
and 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 using those counterpoints as a means of um, uh, yeah doing the comparison and then that offers up our our internal work. And you notice how he's describing us asking ourselves questions. It's not just like we are here's the obvious instructions, you do exactly this, this applies in all situations. We take the truth in, we grapple with it, we try to understand, is this, am I applying this right? What within my own mind matches for or against this truth? It's a process, we have to get in there, engage and wrestle with the truth. And actually, it's essential that we do this, kind of struggling and figuring it out. And there's actually a fascinating sort of technical reason why we have to work through the truth instead of just have it stamped into our minds. This is Secrets of Heaven 7298. It is in keeping with the laws of the divine plan that one ought not to accept the truth instantaneously. No one should be persuaded in a single moment that the truth has been proved beyond all doubt. So if we're here on this show thinking, okay, how can we make this one particular segment that's going to make it this concept undeniable, we're barking up the wrong tree. Because even the perfect truth doesn't want to be presented without the ability to grapple with it a bit. This is because truth imprinted this way becomes merely expedient truth and lacks any reach or give. It's like a substance that's baked too hard. Such truth is represented in the other world as rigid and impervious to any good influence that would make it usable. And that you've got to have the love or else the truth doesn't matter. On that account, as soon as plain experience in the other world presents good spirits with any true idea, an opposing thought is presented right afterward to raise doubt. This allows them to think and ponder whether the idea is so, gather arguments, and thus use reason to introduce the truth into their mind. Doing so extends their range of spiritual vision on the subject all the way to its opposite. As a result, their intellect sees and perceives the entire nature of the particular truth, which enables them to let, heaven's influ- let in heaven's influence according to the state of affairs. Truth takes various shapes depending on circumstances. There's so much to unpack in there. I just want to say that all this talk we do about let people think for themselves, that's actually really important, and that is part of the divine design. That you And because if you don't think it over for yourself, if you don't use the rational capacity that's this essential part of being human, you get this sort of caricature of the truth rather than the actual truth, because if you look at the way he's describing it there, the truth is meant to be sort of an instrument or a vessel that allows heaven to work through it, that heaven needs to come in with it, with the love from God and work through this truth. So unless we really understand something, you think about somebody who's been through something, they understand that much better than those of us who just read about it. So we need to get to that place with these spiritual truths, and then heaven can flow through, and that the truths take various shapes depending on the circumstances. So there's, even if you think you got the concept, it can mean different things in different ways. Uh, situations that we find ourselves in. So just think about the, the, the structure of it being true, but the fluidity needed to actually let love do what needs to be done with those truths. So this is necessarily going to involve a lot of mental turnover, because you're going to have concepts, even one individual truth, you believe it's this, but then you learn, and actually it's this, oh, the whole time I wasn't seeing the whole thing, it's this. We're going to need to be willing to let go of things and take even even things that, that matter to us and be ready to surrender them to revision in the greater process. Things that we hang on to that can serve for a time um, and we think they are the truth are actually 
uh, not. They, they, they are truths that can only serve for a time and when that time is up, they then become something that's detrimental to us moving on. The truth that we hold to today is not the truths that are going to serve us tomorrow. So hold things lightly, um, at least our understanding of things. So the principle is, is that the word is true, um, but the way we understand it is limited. And there has to be a constant expanding of our understanding. But being what we are as human beings, we try to, we hang on to what we feel secure with. And so we need to go through a process of inner separation from things in order for something new to present itself. And, and it's, you know, it's like the new doesn't present itself until you step out into the void. So it's never a great feeling moving out but uh, ultimately that's what we're challenged to do. And, and life illustrates that constantly, you know, if we're moving into a new job or whatever it happens to be, a new relationship, new situation, um, there's always that tension between the security that we've had in the past and what it is we're being asked to move into and the challenges of making that, making that break. So look at where we find ourselves. We are having to go through work. We're doing this process that is taking energy on our part. And over here, we've got like intellectual humility and the distinct uncomfortable feeling that comes with admitting that we didn't quite know something as well as it could be known and that we're revising our opinions based on input. It's all, you may be wondering, why am I here? Why are we doing this? Isn't it sort of a brutal endeavor? But you got to remember who's at the controls and what the intent is. Swedenborg says, the Lord is leading this whole thing. And think about what the Lord is. This is divine love. He actually says in heaven and hell, 17, all my experience in heaven bears witness to the fact, all of his experience, 30 plus years, to the fact that the, the divine nature that comes from the Lord affects angels and constitutes heaven is love. So it's love that God is. Now, I say 30 plus years, but by the time he wrote Heaven and Hell, he had not been in there. But it's for emphasis, all right? Come on, emphasis. The point is, don't worry, you can trust the process, if any Philadelphia basketball fans out there. Uh, you can trust the process. The Lord is driving you to somewhere that's not just because he likes the process, not just because heaven wants to be able to do something with it. This is about you. This is about your eternal happiness. And we can try to exercise this exercise to do sort of sense the divine life in us and how intimately we're partnered with God. So take a minute. We're going to take you through some imagery and that sort of thing. Actually, as you watch this next clip, get a little bit meditative, if I may be so bold, because this is not something we just engage with our mind. We engage with the heart too, because God is equally present in, in all areas of us. So one of the, you know, an interesting exercise is to, um, it's a meditation exercise and, and just to uh, focus yourself on the, um, the sense of life that's within you. Um, and, and just be in the experience, the immediate experience of that and to realize that, um, that the only life in the universe is the Lord and that um, everything that is created is a receptacle for receiving that life. And so the Lord, when, when you do an exercise like that, well, this is my experience, it's an exercise I do, but um, uh, you, you, come, you just come into a sense that the Lord is more intimately related to you than anything else. 
than anything else. And, um, and, and what he is, is pure love. So um, we often, uh, and, and it's because our, our more external realm of our mind is um, uh, stuck in appearances and um, stuck in the idea and the feeling that um, I'm some kind of really independent, autonomous being running around and can be separated from the divine. But in actual fact, that's, that's an appearance. We can never be separated from that love. The separation only occurs because our, the structures of our mind are, are resisting the reception of that love. And so the spiritual work, uh, Logopraxis, is really about um, bringing the mind into a particular kind of order that, that aligns with that love so that it can be, you know, as I mentioned before, fully present. So um, there is, from the Lord's perspective, from the divine perspective, there is no separation. There's nothing, nothing separating him from us. He is our very life. And I loved how he put it near the beginning, nothing is more related to you than the Lord. That we can think, here I am, I have my little life, yeah, God is up there managing everything, but, you know, I'm not as close to the Lord as I'm close to my mom or dad, right? But the idea that, the, no, that the Lord is as intimately um, united to you through caring about your life, through understanding your life, through being your life, through the future partnership you're going to have together, the, you, you, the Lord is more your kin than anything that you ever you've ever been around. And that's so, knowing that that is what's driving this whole thing, it's a different feeling, right? It's like your your best friend who has your back more than you can believe is the one saying, yeah, we got to do this. So, uh, I mean, to me, that's like, all right, let's go, let's do it. So, to, to kind of summarize where we are, we can use the text of divine revelation as the vehicle for this journey that we're talking about. And the journey, of course, leads us to a place that's decently worth going, which is eternal happiness. It takes a long time to sink in because we are so used to supposedly managing our own lives, of being in control. Um, but ultimately, it's that one life that is ordering everything and seeking seeking our spiritual welfare. I mean, that's, that's all the Lord is concerned about. And um, there's nothing we can do that can stop the Lord in his seeking connection with us. And I see it as a major lifestyle upgrade. Like the Lord is offering a, a destiny management service that's way has way better than we can do. Uh, it's something that, that I feel more and more excited about. Oh, I can get into the right flow and, and hit that, uh, you know, divine autopilot taking taking me to this, this amazing level of existence. So yeah, sign me up. And it's astonishing that something that seems so inert and passive like this text that's outside of us that's right. existed in the same form for hundreds of or thousands of years yeah. uh, that that could actually play such an active and intimate role in our own spiritual development it's really just an astonishing idea it's an astonishing idea and not an idea we want to let get away from us so i think now's a good time to recap over everything and make sure we got it all straight let's do it let's go to the wrap up 
The divine is personally invested in each one of us, and divine revelation or the created universe itself actually serves the essential purpose of making our direct experience of God's love and intention for us possible. There is an inner inflow of love and wisdom into our souls, but to experience that and root it into our very being, we need to make the choice to harvest true ideas from revelation and apply them to our lives in order to nucleate the Lord's omnipresence in us. The smallest units of divine revelation, concepts of spiritual wisdom we learn from external sources, are the means by which we can expand our consciousness. Our engagement with them catalyzes a process. We gain insight about our own spiritual state and wisdom about ways to make our lives better. These concepts actually reveal our connections in the spiritual world, allowing us to strengthen our bonds with heavenly communities and undo ones that block heaven's inflow. When we make the choice to participate in this process, our capacity for love and wisdom increases. The change we will be led to undergo isn't always easy and doesn't always feel good, but over time our ability to perceive the Lord's loving presence will grow, as will our enjoyment of heavenly freedom, and we will become better and better agents of the Lord's love in the world. So now that we have this wealth of information, I think we're finally ready to take the big step and add our last two steps mm. to our, our work-through graphic. Ah, uh, yes. You okay. Want to take these away? Sure, sure. So we've got mark a takeaway idea or teaching. This is something for your life. Yep. You know that you can take away something for your internal life, for your behavior in your daily life, and so Rubber on. Rubber meets you the take road. That's it. Really put it in. That's there. right. And thank the Lord. It's always a good idea last step, thank the Lord and pray for the Lord's help, because we do all this as if we're acting on our own, but really the Lord is partnering with us all the way through this and is an active force in it. And so I know that these steps, you know, uh, people may do them in various different ways or whatever. It's just, you know, these are not commands or something, well, but, d- but it's just a sort of a summary, isn't it? D- yeah. Disclaimer, this is not the only way you do this. This isn't even official local practice material. This That's is something right. we put together to help you organize it in case you guys are feeling like this could be something that could help in life. I mean, that's the point. And so we're trying to make it accessible and easy for you, our audience, because we love you. Um, yeah. And so shall we run over it again? Sure. Oh, go. Yeah. Why like not? Just go. run it right down. Here's the First whole First of all, you pick a source, read that regularly, and then when you read, make it devotional and be aware of your state. Note a point of engagement. Reflect with respect to your life. Mm-hmm. Mark a takeaway idea or teaching, and thank the Lord and pray for help. Doesn't sound too bad. I mean, it sounds yeah. like there's worse things. It's good. It's, it's that we straightforward. Through. So hopefully today you guys have have been introduced to a new way to approach sacred text. And from that, that's just a means to the end of getting this connection with the Lord, life going better, people reaching that heavenly peace, heavenly happiness that we're all hoping to look for. So thanks so much, everybody. We're going to get to one of your questions in a minute. But first, a couple of our thank yous, as always. Thanks, everybody, for hanging in there and watching this show with us. If, you'd li- if you're watching this and saying, man, that logo practice stuff seems really boss. I want to do that. Here's a link to a Facebook group. You can actually, this is a thing that's, a, that's alive, so you can go there, actually participate in this. If you want to participate more fully in the Swedenborg Foundation experience, consider first liking and subscribing, of course, but then also join us on Patreon. This is a dollar an episode. We're a nonprofit. This is how we run is off donations. If you feel like you can give that or our work is worth that, We'll hook you up with behind-the-scenes extras, man. For example, we we have that David Miller clips we've been showing throughout this whole thing. That's from a 30-minute 
interview that we did, and we're going to post that whole thing up on Patreon as a thank you from us to you for, for making it happen. Uh, regardless, we really appreciate you being part of the community and watching, and to prove it, we're going to answer one of your questions right now. Terry asks, did the Bible story authors realize the spiritual meaning behind the literal story when they wrote it? It's a great question for this episode, because mm. here we're talking about divine revelation and the nature of divine revelation, and Swedenborg asserts that these Bible stories, simple and strange as they may seem on the literal surface, actually have this complex, multi-leveled layer of meaning. You know, so did the Bible story authors, when they were writing those, did they have to stitch that together and kind of make sure this thing lined up with that? What was the mm. requirements for getting this stuff down? It's a very interesting question and, and very you know, pertinent to tonight's show, isn't it? The, um, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that there was sort of a change over time. Mm. Swedenborg says that the early authors uh, had this, you know, we're talking a long, long, you know, thousands of years ago, that they had this great love of framing stories according to the inner meaning. Mm. And so it was just a, a tremendous delight to them to work out, okay, well, we should have it be night and we, you know, or something. So okay. some of the earliest stuff in, in the early first 11 chapters in Genesis and so on were framed according to these principles, he says. Uh, so there you would say, oh, the author totally knew and was moving things around. Uh, at other times, uh, some of the other authors of the Old Testament, Swedenborg suggests, um, were getting stuff by a, dicto a dictation. You know, okay. they would sort of hear the words in their mind and, and just like write exactly this. Compelled to, yeah, they would actually hear a voice or something, and they would, you know, the word of the Lord said to me so and so, and they they would write it down. And I think it wasn't necessary. They may have seen, you know, some of the meaning, but it wasn't necessary in the same way as it was for those ancient authors. They didn't have to be engaged in understanding all the ramifications of it. Just get the words on paper. That's the important part, because that will contain this heavenly meaning. And the third aspect that Swedenborg throws in is that sometimes they were lifted up into the world of spirits or somewhere and had spiritual experiences, and they would just write down what they saw. And again, they didn't necessarily understand what the the goat or the you know this temple that they saw or whatever it was you know what what those things meant, uh, but it all had that meaning from heaven that they encoded in the text. What's a fascinating dynamic overall with this whole? Do you need to know what you're doing to participate in Revelation? Right. Because not just the authors, but the actors in the stories. Swedenborg says that a lot of the Bible is describing true events, and right, that those events corresponded to things that were very meaningful mm -hmm. in a heavenly and spiritual way. But the people participating didn't necessarily weren't necessarily aware of that at all, and at times could be doing those very things for uh, opposing motives. That you could be doing the things right. that occur in the stories for for selfish, horrific reasons, but yet they were structured in a way in which they still could serve the function of manifesting the, the revelation. So there doesn't yeah. seem to be... It's like you've got to... As long as you get the things in the places they need to be, heaven can work through that, regardless of what's going on in the hearts and minds of the of the actors. Yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting point. I, I remember Swedenborg saying things about how, you know, some of the, the violence... I mean, there's a fair amount of bloodshed and warfare in the Old Testament, and some of the motivations for that may have not come from a particularly great, you know, sometimes people are being tortured or whatever, yeah. uh, but it was still sort of allowed and got in the story because it had a positive internal meaning. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, be, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Bringing good out of evil 
and that Providence is always somehow doing that. And usually we're in the dark about how Providence is working. So it would make sense right. if at least some of the stuff that's going on with the the internal sense was was above the, the writer's head, just like we don't always understand what's going on in the deeper levels of our own life. So we've all no, got this internal right. sense that and kind of makes it so that we're just trudging along on the outermost shell of what the totality of our story is. Yeah, you look back on it later and you see its significance that you didn't see at the time. The other thing that this question reminds me of is... Not not related to the Bible, but um, it was said that um, Socrates uh, went around in ancient Greece to all these different authors and asked them what the things they had written meant, and he was kind of astonished at how stupid their answers were. Like, they really didn't seem to get (laughs) what they themselves had written. You know, they'd written Mm. this beautiful poetry or this great thing, and when he would challenge them, I'd say, what do you think that means? He was kind of disappointed in the answers like wow these people didn't even really know um well you know what they were saying so anyway it just came to mind well that's that's our show and if you enjoyed the show it's probably (laughs) a case of that happening like (laughs) ask us what this all means but hopefully you had fun (laughs) that's our show for this week it's been really fun and it's been an honor exploring this concept with all of you i just love the idea that we have a space where we're interested in stuff like this where we can explore this and hopefully pull things out of it that are going to make a big difference to individuals and and collectively uh, to the world if i can be so bold so thanks for joining us again we want you here next week and next week's going to be our live interactive community chat show so coming up next monday at 8 p.m eastern we are going to have your your comments on screen we're going to have people from the audience calling in it's going to be a real like we've learned these concepts what are they doing for us if any of you try logo practice between now and then i want to hear about it let's connect let's make this stuff come more and more alive hope to see you then swedenborg and life is amy aquarola morgan beard curtis childs karen childs matthew childs alexa cole john Connolly, cara dom chris dunn Stuart farmer ben keys Reed McArdle, Chelsea Odner, Jonathan Rose, Shiloh Silverman, and Shada Sullivan.